1: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Radio here at The Economist, and welcome to this special edition of Money Talks, recorded on location at last week's World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland. Coming up later, we meet the man nicknamed Dr. Doom, who's been issuing some stark warnings about the Trump era and its impact on America and the wider global economy.
2: If you're ignoring Asia, if you're ignoring Europe, if you're ignoring the Middle East because you're self-sufficient on energy, you're not playing the role of providing global security.
1: And away from the snows of Switzerland, we hear why the future of R&D needs to crank up a gear.
2: For example, we
3: have about 50 times as many scientists working on new ideas now than we did 50 years ago, but actually our productivity growth rates are lower.
1: But to start, Donald Trump's inauguration was prominent in the thoughts of many at Davos. But just what are his fiscal and broader financial plans? To explore that, I spoke to Doug Elmendorf, Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School and former head of the Congressional Budget Office. And Doug and I were joined by our own economics editor, John O'Sullivan. We began by wondering about Donald Trump's attitude to the Federal Reserve. Republicans tend to want a tough monetary policy, but it's difficult to imagine that sort of Fed being desired by someone like Donald Trump, who's an economic populist.
0: Well, I'm curious to see whether the Congressional Republicans' interest in tighter monetary policy persists now that they are responsible with the president for the state of our economy. I think it was surprising to many people that they were so strongly opposed to expansionary monetary policy when it was clearly needed in the eyes of almost all economists, not quite all, but in almost the eyes of almost all economists, and the hostility that, that the Republicans had toward expansionary policy, led by Ben Bernanke, who was, after all, a Republican appointee, was surprising. And I think there's a chance that they will change their minds at this point and decide that lower interest rates are actually good for economic growth Uh, They're good for keeping the deficit down, which the Republicans will want to be seen as doing. And we'll see how much they resist uh, President Trump's inclination to appoint uh, people who are inclined toward easier monetary policy. I also think we don't really know what Donald Trump thinks about monetary policy. He's inclined to favor lower interest rates. But there are a lot of different aspects of foreign policy and domestic policy, where he's picked people who are well out of the mainstream debate, because he takes a fancy to them and that may happen in this case as well
4: but you're absolutely right we don't really know what his preferences are we're making sort of inferences from his sort of his past but it just seems that his comments about the dollar this week would would lean you towards a sort of a, a, a sort of a more lax or a more dovish Fed than a, than a hawkish Fed. A hawkish Fed gets the dollar up, and that's a big problem for him in terms of the trade deficit, because yeah. it sucks in imports, and it's a problem for him in terms of the manufacturing base. All the things that he's sort of campaigned on is problematic if you have a hawkish Fed, and I think it's possible that those comments about the dollar are a sort of growing realisation that that's, that's where things would go.
1: Doug, you haven't sounded absolutely convinced by by the the early outlook for Trumponomics, or indeed even the offer from congressional Republicans. But so let me put the boot on the other foot here. I mean, there's been a bit of a massive fail by highly intelligent, economically skilled Democrats. What are you going to do about that?
0: Well, I think that Democrats and Republicans alike need to focus on ways to increase economic opportunity for lower- and middle-income Americans. I'd be happy if higher income Americans also had economic growth benefit them but the real challenge in the United States and in many other countries is to make sure that overall economic growth benefits lower and middle income people, people with less education, with skills that are less important in an evolving economy. And that's the crucial issue I think for both parties. I think part of why Hillary Clinton lost the election was that she did not speak clearly and persuasively enough about what she would do. Uh, to help people who are worried about their economic futures. And both parties in the United States and many parties in other countries need to focus absolutely on that priority.
1: And there's the challenge, but also the conundrum, isn't it, John? And cultures, political cultures that are focused strongly on growth, at the same time now being told that they've got to go off and, and sort out people who may not be contributing that much to the bottom line of economic growth. What's the way through it?
4: It's not just about growth, it's about inclusive growth. How can you actually have growth with a much greater degree of equity so everyone gets a share of it? This is the head scratch. If there were easy answers to this, I think we would have implemented them already. But at least the thinking is, is now seriously starting on this. How
1: do we interpret Donald Trump's comments about the European Union? He gave joint interviews this week to The Times and to Bild Zeitung in, in Germany, in which he, he underlined his opposition to the direction of the European Union. This is quite a shift, Doug, isn't it? We're used to a kind of herbivorous view from across the Atlantic, that the EU is broadly a good thing. Uh, perhaps Americans wouldn't much fancy uh, being in it themselves. Uh, but this is going to be quite a shift. Do you think it will have a big impact?
0: I think we see two things in Donald Trump's interviews. One is that he is an economic nationalist in a way that our previous presidents have not been. Two, he believes in staking out very aggressive negotiating positions and hoping that plays to his advantage in the negotiation. So I think he is trying to state things very strongly in a way that ruffles feathers, that upsets the existing uh, order, in the hopes that that will somehow lead to the United States getting a better deal in the end. What I don't think he has is enough experience in this kind of international policy making to really know how to conduct this sort of deal. So it might work, but it might well not work either.
1: Opportunity here perhaps for UK PLC, John, uh, as much as uh, The Economist has generally taken the line that Brexit was a bad idea, particularly on the economics of it, well, he's given his first interview to a prominent British Brexiteer, to Michael Gove. He's clearly not very much in, in, in love with the, the
4: German uh, model of Angela Merkel, so is there an opportunity here for a good deal? Oh, well, there might be, but um, I, I'm sort of a little bit sceptical about the idea that he's going to give everyone a hard time and give Britain an easy deal. Trade negotiation is incredibly difficult, and even if Donald Trump's in the room, I don't think you can smooth out all the wrinkles in, in trade negotiations in a, in a preferential way for Britain. I think the, a lot of the people that wanted us, the free traders who wanted us to leave the EU, look to a sort of trade pact with America as a sort of fairly natural thing, an Anglosphere and all the rest of it. So certainly there'd be a willingness on the British side to facilitate that and get that through quickly. And I guess you'll get the meetings, but I just wonder how, how good a deal you'd get and how quickly it would be put together.
1: Just before we close, I thought we might go to you both gentlemen for a prediction, something you think will happen in the Trump era, in the economic sphere, and perhaps something that you think is foretold but is less likely to happen. Doug, you first.
0: I think one thing we'll see in the Trump era is continuing interventions by the president in individual companies' businesses, complaints about their taking Uh, jobs overseas, complaints that they're charging the federal government too much for the products they sell, and so on. I think there's a great risk in that, undermining our rules-based system, but potentially some gain in resetting social norms. I think the thing that's been predicted to happen that won't happen is a surge in economic growth. There is no way, given the demographics of our economy, that the set of policies that Donald Trump has talked about or the Congressional Republicans have talked about we will get economic growth over three percent on a sustained basis, much less some of the bigger numbers that we've heard.
1: So you're bearish on the growth question. John, your bets on or off for the Trump era?
4: The downside risk, I agree with, with Doug, which is the idea of fiscal stimulus disappoints and you don't get the bump you're, you're, you're looking for. I think the upside risk is that you don't get a strong fiscal stimulus, you don't get a strong dollar. In fact, the dollar starts to weaken. And therefore, you don't get protectionist pressures coming from a wider trade deficit. And therefore, you don't get uh, some dumb things on on tariffs and and protectionism generally.
1: The upside risks there from John O'Sullivan and Doug Elmendorf. Thank you both for being with me.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
1: My thanks to Doug Elmendorf of the Harvard Kennedy School and our economics editor, John O'Sullivan. And what do you think? Is Mr Trump's stance on monetary policy likely to succeed or fail? Let us know. You can contact us, Twitter at Economist Radio or send an old-fashioned email to radio at economist.com. Now, this year's World Economic Forum saw a number of debates staged on Facebook Live, with questions coming from all over the world. I chaired one of them with the forum, in a very classy glass booth, I must add, with a leading American economist, Nouriel Rubini. He's been a senior economist for the Council of Economic Advisers and runs his own consultancy firm. And Mr Rubini is well known for his pessimism about the incoming presidency and its economic impacts. So these projections of doom are where our conversation started.
2: Well, I think I'm more of a realist, Dr Realist, rather than Dr Doom. She's not being pessimist or optimist, but try to make sense of reality, the way it's going to occur. and a whole bunch of um, uncertainties, volatilities and threat risks that we have to think about.
1: What is the potential, do you think, for a Trump administration to, to play a, a different role? Are there any causes, for a gleam of optimism?
2: Well, uh, being a global balancer means that you want to continue with the Pax Americana, where the US was a global hegemon providing both global security in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East and supporting its allies in Europe, in the Middle East, in Asia, the Koreas, Japans of the world. If this is the end of the Pax Americana because the US believes we should look only at our national interest, and since we're surrounded by two large oceans and the homeland is not under threat, the only threat being, of course, uh, a nuclear bomb from North Korea, or terrorism, and on those things, of course, the US is going to be tough. But then, if you're ignoring Asia, if you're ignoring Europe, if you're ignoring Middle East, because you're self-sufficient on energy, you're not playing the role of providing global security. But and we didn't uh, have
1: a Pax Americana operating when Syria got out of control.
2: Uh, we did not, and gradually over time, we decided that we're overstretched, and we didn't want to get involved into Syria and not getting involved in Syria has led to the conflict getting worse, and now greater influence by Iran and by Russia in Syria, for example. So when you withdraw from becoming a global hegemon, other powers that have interest uh, are going to fill in that void, and they're not going to fill that void in a way that is constructive for U.S. for global stability. And of course, the consequences of failed states in uh, uh, the Middle East, whether it's Iraq or Syria or Yemen or Libya or eventually Lebanon and others, is that there is a, a massive flow of refugees that end up on the shores of Europe. So you destabilize further Europe and you have to care about Europe. That's been our traditional ally.
1: Here's another question that's just come in. Kamalaika Perez, do you think that the so called jobless recoveries are to blame for the schism in US society between elites and the electorate?
2: It's in part. What has happened for the last few years is that while most economists would agree that overall trade, migration, globalization, technological innovation is good, even basic economic theory suggests that there are winners and losers. Owners of capital gain; those with skill labor win, but historically trade and migration has hurt incomes and jobs of uh, low skill, low value added workers in manufacturing. But now. The process of technology innovation, migration, and globalization is occurring so fast that it's not just uh, low skilled manufacturing workers, but increasingly also white collars in addition to blue collars, and not just low skill, but also middle skill. So, those where the winners are a shrinking part of the electorate, and those that are threatened directly and indirectly from trade, uh, globalization, technology, migration, and so on, are becoming a larger number, and now they become politically organized. And they've started to vote uh, during the last electoral cycle, on the right for Donald Trump and on the left for Bernie Sanders. So I think that uh, we're seeing this broader backlash, this is a populist backlash uh, against uh, globalization. It's not just Brexit, it's not just U.S., but it's a whole bunch of emerging markets, and it comes from the fear that actually globalization is going to be massively disruptive. So either we find economic policy to make sure that everybody survives and thrives in a global economy that is increasingly digital, or otherwise this political backlash over time is going to become more extreme.
1: Making America great again, writes Abdul-Kabir Mubana, broken into small pieces, is a new way of looking at the world, both internally and externally. That's also been a bit of a a theme here at Davos at the World Economic Forum. Do you think that elites, or indeed anyone who makes decisions that that impact in some way on that economic social chain, that we've kind of got our heads around of this? Because it's one thing to sit here and foresee disaster. It's another to say, right, I can see another direction, that we could go on and take people with us. Do you think we're getting there?
2: Well, at least people are discussing, including the elites in Davos, that there is this populist backlash against globalization, winners and losers, and something needs to be done. Uh, It's not uh, so simple, because you could build a wall in the border of Mexico against migration. You could also build a Protectionist wall by imposing tariffs against Mexico, China, and the rest of the world. But as President Obama correctly stated in his final address, technology is going to disrupt jobs even more than trade and migration and globalization. Uh, for example, eventually we're going to have driverless cars and trucks. I don't know whether it's going to take 5, 10, 15 years. But in 48 out of 50 United States states, the number one profession is truck driving.
1: Uh, let's turn the globe around a bit, as, as we should indeed at the uh, World Economic Forum. Uh, what would be the main economic challenges for Asia-Pacific in 2017? From Paul Pass.
2: Well, in the Asia-Pacific, the biggest elephant uh, in the room of that continent is, of course, China. China has followed for the last decades a model of growth that even the Chinese leader suggests is unsustainable, capital-intensive, rather labor-intensive. Too much capex, not enough consumption, quantity of growth rather than quality of growth and the environment, regional imbalances, income inequality imbalances, and so on. They've been talking about rebalancing that growth rate, but every time the growth rate slows down, they go into panic and they do a new round of credit fueled fixed investment. Mm-hmm. That means more bad assets, more bad debts, more leverage, more overcapacity in a number of sectors. So they're kicking the cam down the road. Now, markets are happy because growth officially is still 6.5% as they double down by doing more of the same, but they're building up financial vulnerabilities that over time can lead to a harder landing of China. This will have massive effects, of course, for Asia Pacific because uh, if China sneezes, the rest of the Pacific and Asia takes a cold and China is at risk of not sneezing but getting a severe case of pneumonia if a hard landing were to occur. So definitely, what happens in China is going to be key for the future economic success of Asia and Pacific.
1: Not just uh, Asian flu, but possibly Asian pneumonia, far more serious.
2: Yes, <laughs> it's a risk, certainly.
1: My thanks to Nuriel Rubini. Finally, let's shake off our snow boots and put the meetings and debates of Davos to one side. Over the past couple of weeks, we brought you a series of reports from the American Economic Association Conference in Chicago. One of the speakers was Nick Bloom, professor at Stanford University and the Stanford Institute of Economic Policy Research. His latest work has been to study why countries such as America and Britain have slowing rates of productivity and overall growth. Nick was asked to explain more about his research by our economics correspondent, Sumea Keynes. So here at the conference, you've presented a few papers. The first paper you've presented is on ideas getting harder to find.
3: The, the basic fact is world productivity growth has been slowing down since the end of World War II. So productivity is the amount of outputs you get from a given set of inputs, And that was growing at about 3% from the 50s and 60s. These were the the golden era of economic growth where exciting new things were being invented almost every week. And in fact, in about the last 10 years, it's dropped now to about 1%.
1: And so what do you do in your paper?
3: We break it down into uh, two components. One is how much is the world, and in particular America, spending on R&D, so how many new scientists are working on basically new ideas and new products. And how productive are they? And what we see is that there's increasing amount of science and R&D going on. So every year, science expenditure globally is going up by about 4 to 5% a year. But the impact of that is falling. And the, the basic punchline is ideas are getting harder and harder to find. So for a scientist spends a, a year researching this year, he or she is more likely to make a breakthrough than they will 10 years from now, but less likely 10 years before
1: How can you be sure that it's not just that we're getting worse and worse at measuring the impact of these new findings?
3: Measurement of output and productivity is hard, but the the trends are just enormous. So for example, we have about 50 times as many scientists working on new ideas now than we did 50 years ago, but actually our productivity growth rates are lower. So you'd have to have some kind of huge uh, missing amount of output. The, the numbers are striking you know in, a, in, a, in many ways it 's very much that like common sense, so if you go to the Science Museum in London, I remember these are amazing exhibitions of things some Victorians invented more or less in their garden shed over the weekend, you know that was the era or well, the Wright brothers they invented aviation, two guys now, for a much smaller improvement in flight experience, it takes teams of thousands of engineers at Boeing or Airbus, and we just see that across everything so
1: you 're looking at the declining outputs relative to your inputs in industries that we've already established, but what about new ideas and new industries that haven't been created yet? Is there any evidence that we're creating those at a slower rate?
3: We're certainly coming up with new ideas and new industries. So the iPhone is a great example. So Steve Jobs, you know, re- Steve Jobs realized about 15 years ago this thing could be made cheaply enough in China to actually hit the mass market. And once the first iPhone started selling for a what, $500 a piece, you know, the, the market took off and there's been a huge amount of innovation it just appears in the data that there aren't enough of of these new types of products to replace the collapse of innovation in current existing products. And, you know, Bob Gordon has long said who'd replace, you know, who'd give up an an inside toilet for the iPhone? And, you know, the problem is a lot of the early innovations, inside toilets, clean water, penicillin, uh, you know, safe automobiles, cars, uh, radio and TV, they're just not replaced by Twitter or the iPhone. So p- partly ideas are getting harder and harder to find and partly, you know, to the extent we're opening up new fields, they're great and they're very exciting, but they're just not as fundamental as some of the things that came
1: before. This all sounds very, very pessimistic.
3: It's, you know, it, it, you can look at it either way. So, um, so far, the world's response has been to increase the amount of spending on R&D. So roughly speaking, we need to increase the amount of research and development, i.e. the number of scientists we have every year by about 5% to hold growth constant. And since World War II, it's gone up by about 4.5%. So that half a percent difference is why very slowly our productivity growth rates are falling, because we're not quite keeping up with it. So imagine you're on a treadmill, and the treadmill speed is slowly being eked up, and you're not quite running fast enough to keep up with it. So in some senses, we're still, we're still enjoying productivity growth of 1% a year. That's great. Over you know 50 years, we've we doubled the uh, output, and so each generation on average is, is getting wealthier. But we're not doing as well, certainly as we were doing 40 years ago.
1: How should policymakers respond to this finding?
3: there's two types of policies. One is, uh, you know, recognizing what's going on. So central banks and governments, they make budget forecasts and predictions based on future growth. And I think it's important to be realistic that growth rates are slowing down and aren't likely to pick up. So for example, things like pensions, how much should we save for retirement? Uh, I don't want to find the government's forecasted high growth and it turns out to be low. And you know, when I retire, there's no money in my pension pot. And the other policy is to actually try and improve growth. And that's very much increasing education, but also increasing spending on R&D and scientists. So, you know, the, the more that we can uh, try and offset the slowdown by improving education and pumping money into research and development tax credits, subsidizing direct research, cutting taxes for R&D intensive companies, the more we'll help to maintain high growth rates.
1: So Maya Kane's there, talking about the future of R&D with Nick Bloom from Stanford University. And that's all from Money Talks this week. Our regular presenter, Simon Long, will be back in the seat next week. To read more about the topics discussed in the show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. Do join us all again next time. In London, this is The Economist.
2: Traffic jams